You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. As you may know, I'm a big fan of taking saunas. They've got numerous health benefits, so they make you feel great. And they're not a bad place to just escape your kids for a bit of me time. So I'm super excited to announce that this season of Well and Good is brought to you by Found Space. These guys are an incredible infrared sauna company. And they are giving away one of their infrared saunas to our listeners. Yes, that's right. They're giving away a whole sauna. So listen along and find out how you can win. On today's episode of the podcast, I sit down and chat with Dr. Cliff Harvey, who is a buddy of mine and uh, an absolute brain box. He knows so much about so many different aspects of, of health and wellness and performance that I wanted to get him back. This is the second time he's been on the podcast. He's got his fingers in a few different pies in the health world. He's a nutritionist, a naturopath, a prominent health researcher. He's written books on living with passion and purpose. He's studied techniques like Reiki and hypnosis. So now he, he looks at health from a very holistic perspective. And he's also, well, he's into weightlifting. He's a world champion and world record holder. He's got uh, more than 20 years of experience in strength coaching with the likes of Team New Zealand, Joseph Parker, and the Canadian Rugby Union. And that's what we really get into in today's episode. We strip it right back and uh, get into some really valuable insights into strength and resistance training. And one thing that I've been, I guess, doing more lately has been hypertrophy training or uh, muscle growth. And we talk a lot about that. We talk about the best exercises to get stronger and promote longevity. And Cliff breaks it down into um, a really helpful and useful takeaway, actionable tips. We also talk through why strength training and resistance training is the best type of training for long-term health benefits and how to complement it with nutrition and in particular protein. There's so much in this for anyone who does any type of lifting or strength work. It's super informative and shows how to approach your training to be as effective and efficient as possible. Enjoy. Have you found it's harder to put on muscle as you've been aging? Probably, but one of the sort of provisos with that is when I was younger, I was often actually trying to keep my weight down because mm. I was trying to keep it down to compete in certain weight classes for weightlifting. And then when I retired and inverted commas from weightlifting, I um, was obviously doing a lot of fighting, you know, boxing and wrestling and jujitsu and stuff like that and trying to keep my weight down for that. So it probably is more difficult because I remember in those really early days when I was in my late teens, you know, just stacked on muscle. But making a concerted effort to actually do that now, it's not that difficult to put on muscle. I find the hardest thing is to get bigger and stay as lean as I used to mm. back in the day, you know. But I'm not really worried about that now anyway. I want to delve into your strengths. Well, actually, your, your training in general, what you're doing and why you're doing it in today's chat. But first question I have for you, as a, a fellow health enthusiast, I'm sure you've partaken in or maybe currently do some sort of weird or random or strange health <laughs> interventions or um, things to improve your health. Is there anything that you could um, think of off the top of your head that people might think is kind of strange? I mean, I've got heaps of them, but I'm interested to see what you've got. I don't think I do. Really? Now, that's not to say that I haven't done really weird things and in some cases probably quite dangerous things back in the day. You know, like really weird stuff. But now, how weird are we talking? Can you like <laughs> give us an example? I give an example. I, I probably haven't told anyone about this because it's such a crazy, cavalier, dangerous, weird thing to do. But when we were young, 
I got into the industry pretty young, right? I was in my late teens. We started up a couple of supplement shops. We had sort of little nutritional consultancies attached to them. And we would just experiment with everything. Like, you know, you look at biohackers now, they, they're nothing compared to what we were doing. <laughs> anyway, we found out about this thing that professional bodybuilders were using called DMP, dinitrophenol. Yeah. At the time, it was a completely legal thing. It was used for industrial purposes. What it basically does is it massively increases your rate of cellular uh, respiration, right? So it's, it's increasing your metabolic activity massively. So the idea was that you could take this stuff and basically lose body fat for no extra input mm. and do that very effectively and it spared muscle and all this kind of stuff. Now, whether that is all true, I'm not sure because obviously we didn't want to keep on with this thing because there, there's a lot of danger associated with it. If you take too much you've got this excessive activity happening in the body, which can lead to overheating and rhabdomyolysis and liver failure and muscle liquefaction, all this kind of stuff. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but we were crazy, right? And we were young, we were teenagers and, you know, late teens at this point, <clears throat> and we gave it a crack, right? And we thought that we were being very precise with our dosing and things like that. Anyway, the one time I tried this, I had dosed it out perfectly, took the, you know, what I thought was the appropriate dose and started getting really hot. Initially, I thought this was probably just a result of the supplement that we were taking. Uh, then I got a bit hotter, a bit hotter, a bit hotter, and I thought, oh, shit, I've probably overdone this now, and I freaked out. Mm. Now, I probably didn't need to freak out because I don't think I actually overdosed, but I started to freak out anyway, so I thought, what can I do? So I started drinking ice water ate a loaf of bread to try and just get as much. Like, <laughs> what was the bread for? Just try and get as much water into the cells okay. as I could. I felt really dehydrated. That didn't seem to be working. So at the time I had a house with a pool. So I jumped in the pool and I was just basically sitting in the pool drinking ice water trying to keep my temperature wow. down. Freaked me out. Never tried it again, obviously. But that's one of those cavalier things that, you know, you do when you're young. Mm. And thankfully there were no ramifications from it. But... Often when people criticize young people for doing crazy things, I think, like, we've all done it. We were just lucky. Mm. You know, we were really lucky with a lot of the things that we did when we were younger. And so, you know, things like that are really as weird and as crazy as it got. Yeah. And I think nowadays my routine's pretty stayed because I think I've been through the fire on a lot of things, mm. whether it be that kind of stuff or psychotropics or whatever. And now um, I've got my routine in my life fairly well in balance, I think. Mm. So probably the weirdest thing that I'm involved with now is I'm really interested in, and it's not that weird really, I'm really interested in the mind-body aspects of, of health. Yeah. And particularly so because I suffer a lot of chronic pain. You know, And people would say, well, that results from injuries you've had, back injuries, weightlifting, you know, other injuries, all that I have, you know, Crohn's disease and some other autoimmune inflammatory stuff going on. But really, I think that those are only limited in their explanation. And I think a lot of what we see in the research now is that the mind-body connection and our psycho-emotional and psychosocial state has such a massive role to play in how we feel and in pain responses and, and other health things that are happening in the body um, that I probably get a little bit woo on that side of things. So I'm really thinking a lot about you know, how my thought processes are affecting my pain. And so there's a lot of, you know, meditation and stuff that I do around that to try and sort of mitigate that stuff. Wow. And so when do you do that sort of stuff? Is that like a set meditation that you do during the day or do you do it like if you're feeling the pain, you sort of focus on that pain or, or is there something that you do? 
Yeah, a lot of reflection. So it's it's very much in the moment stuff. Mm. You know, when the pain is there, why is this pain? You know, where is the pain? What is the pain? How is the pain? You know, all those types of things. Just basically reflecting on everything and looking at, well, what's what's happening? How am I feeling? What am I thinking? When people become involved in, in looking in that a little bit deeper, because as you probably know, like if we look at chronic low back pain, for example, there is basically no association between chronic low back pain and pathologies of the spine, despite what people say. You know, you can't find that connection in the research. Of course, if you hurt yourself, you've got an injury, there's going to be pain, but that's acute. When we're talking about chronic, we're talking about, you know, months or years later, the healing's been done, there shouldn't necessarily be the pain. But people will say, oh, well, there's still dysfunction there. But when we look at the research and it shows us that there are basically as many people with pathologies of the spine and pain as there are people without pathologies of the spine and pain and people with pathologies of the spine and no pain, it basically shows us that there's nothing there. But there are associations between psychosocial things like fear and pain. So that's telling us that stuff's going on, right? And And, and stress, surely, as well, right? Well, that's probably a big driver, right? And so when people begin to recognize that their pain is not pathology, and pathology doesn't always drive pain, there's actually a big reduction in pain anyway. Mm. So a lot of this reflective type stuff really helps people to just, just live a better quality of life, right? Mm. So yeah, that's sort of my my weird and wonderful stuff now. But I think that area of mind-body medicine, or to put it in more sort of scientific terms, psychoneurophysiology, is one of the next big frontiers in medicine. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that um, although, you know, we're talking about it as a, a weird thing that you do now, I'd say probably in, you know, 10, 15 years, it would be far more commonplace. And I think there'd be more and more science to back it up. So people would be um, a lot more understanding of it, I think. Well, a lot of the weird things we do, assuming they get proven, of course, and assuming <laughs> at least that there's good plausibility behind them. Mm. And you know that they're safe and effective and things like that, even those early stages, they end up being quite foundational. Mm. You know, when we started using creatine back in the 90s, people thought we were crazy. Like, why would you use that supplement? It's new and it's emerging and there haven't been that many studies done on it yet. Well, now there have been a thousand or more mm. peer-reviewed studies. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we were doing back in the day that were seen as pretty weird are now just normal. Yeah. So let's go back and um, just have a little bit of a background on you and your resistance training. I want to talk about resistance training today. So I want to get some background on your history with resistance training, what you've um, been training for. I I mean, I think, do you still hold some world records and some feats of strength? At least you did, right? Yeah, I still hold. You still do? Yeah. yeah. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of all that? Yeah, well, it, it all started, I never had any aspirations to go into strength sport, never had aspirations to get into nutrition, anything like that. I love playing sport, but I wanted to be a a landscape designer designing zen-inspired gardens and doing bonsai and stuff because that's my hobby is doing bonsai. I was approached by the coaches of the First 15 when I was at high school, and they said, if you can put on enough size, you're captain the First 15. If you don't put on the size, you won't play because you're just too small. And so I thought, well, I I love my footy. I want to, you know, captain the First 15. That'd be a, a feather in my cap. And so I can be quite obsessive about things. Once I started thinking about that, I was just thinking about, well, how the body works, what I could do nutrition-wise, training-wise, all that kind of stuff. I went to the library and got out books and read everything I possibly could about physiology, resistance training, nutrition. And that's really drove my passion for both strength and nutrition. So that also changed where I wanted to be in terms of a career because I just developed this 
you know, real passion for how the body works. And I, I particularly developed a passion for getting stronger. And so I went off to AUT, studied fitness training and a few other things. That's when I got into strength training and developed a love for the, the all-round lifts, like the old-time strongman type stuff. Now, initially, that wasn't my focus because I was boxing, and so boxing was my focus, and that was a sideline. Uh, but I took a few hits to the head and um, had a chat with my, my coach, Chris Martin, who is a fairly well-known boxing coach, and he said, look, dude, you've got a decent brain. Like, do you want to continue to have it pummeled, or do you want to do other things? I thought, that's probably a good point. So instead of keeping on with the boxing... I obviously had my emerging career in strength training or strength and conditioning coaching and in nutrition. But then I really went in depth on all-round weightlifting, which is that old-school, old-time strongman type stuff. So, and with the strongman type stuff, we're talking about like deadlifts, squats. We're talking about those and more. Olympic lifting. Yep. Yep. The sport of weightlifting originally was just weightlifting. And it was predominantly feats of strength. So you'd have uh, feats of strength performed by strongmen or you'd have competitions between individuals. You know, it was this big sort of, it was almost like prize fighting, but in in terms of strength. Then when the Olympics came along, that was actually all round until they decided to just have a couple of lifts, right? So in the early Olympics, it was things like the one-arm snatch and, you know, one-arm clean and jerks and all sorts of weird things. Mm. And they would choose the lifts before the event. Uh, then they thought, well, we need to standardize this a bit more. So they went to three lifts. Now it's obviously two, but initially they had three. And so the sport of weightlifting began to sort of splinter. And you had Olympic weightlifting, you had all round, which was all the other lifts, you know, more than 140 recognized weightlifts. Uh, Olympic lifting, which is now just two lifts, and powerlifting emerged in the 50s, I think, which was the three lifts of bench, squat, deadlift. So I really liked all round because it had a lot more variety and it was conducive to different body types and all sorts. So when I'm talking all round weightlifting, we're talking about, yeah, variations of deadlifts, squats, presses, but there's lots of them. Mm. So I was very much a grip and back lifter. So I was good at things like the one-handed deadlift, which I never hit a world record for, but I've, I've I betted the world standard several times outside of comp. You know, one-arm snatch, which I briefly held the world record for. Other things like rack deadlifts, you know, deadlifts from the knees, mm. that kind of stuff. And so that was really my my forte was doing the back and, and grip stuff. Wow. And one arm as well. That's incredible. What um, what sort of weights are we talking for the one arm deadlift and one arm snatch? So to put it in perspective, I competed under 75 kilos, which is a lot smaller than I am now. Yeah. Uh, my best one arm snatch was, I think, 65 kilos so it was close to body weight close to body weight imagine imagine lifting your own body weight over your head in, in one movement that's with one arm <laughs> with one arm that's pretty incredible the best one hand deadlift was 180 kilos wow. um, and the best rack deadlift or deadlift from the knees was I think just shy of about 415 kilos so <laughs> that's insane but yeah. so when you're doing the um when you're doing say the one arm deadlift are you relying purely on your grip you're not allowed to use any straps or anything yeah, no, no straps. No straps, yeah. However, you do use a hook grip, so yep. similar to an Olympic lifting, and that makes it a lot easier. Right. It, there's still a lot of grip strength involved, but it's not as if you're just using, you know, a standard or what we would call a Chivatoni grip, uh, which is just that normal sort of grip with the thumb over the fingers. fingers. Uh, a, a hook grip, for people who don't know, is when the thumb is wrapped around the bar first and then the fingers go over the top, and that basically locks the thumb in there, so it makes for a much stronger grip. Mm. A lot of people don't realize that because I, mean, I was on um, Māori television and I did a little comp with uh, KT, Kaltanana, and uh, he, he obviously didn't know the tricks, right? So he was just trying to pull conventional yeah. with a conventional grip and there's no way he could get close to what I lifted there. And I think I only pulled about 160 or so there just as a strength 
expo, but yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure if people people can probably find that on the archive somewhere. <laughs> no, that's incredible. So um, today I really want to talk about resistance training in general and the different types of resistance training. And as a broad overview, how would you classify resistance training? Like, is it any sort of movement that is, you know, using weight or, or some sort of resistance to make your muscles stronger? Like, what, what is it? To be parsimonious about it, it's anything in which you're applying resistance to the muscle and to those levers. So it could be weightlifting, which is what most, most people think of, or weight training, because most people think of weightlifting as competitive, but, you know, weight training in the gym. So that could be any of those implements, barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, machines, bands, you know, or it can be things like yoga, pilates, calisthenics, you know, anything in which you're moving the joints through a range of motion, there's resistance mm. on them, yeah. And then the different types, I guess, are really dependent on your different goals, right? Okay, so let's talk about strength training. What are some of the principles of strength training that you'd want to adhere to or maybe some of the um, common, you know, like progressive overload is an example of um, a methodology that is well known and talked about. And it's integral, right? That's the most important element of strength training is progressive overload. Right, okay. And, and what know, is the, it? So that, that's basically where you're providing an increasing load over time because if we just provide the same load, the body will adapt but then it won't adapt anymore. You know, the, the body is very efficient. So it wants to adapt so that it makes future events more comfortable. And once it gets to that point of comfort, there's no need for further adaptation. That would be a really inefficient use of, of resources. You know, our resources being substrate for energy, substrate for creation of tissue. Like we don't want to be inefficient with that stuff. The most important thing is that we preserve resources as a human body, right? So we need to be increasing something. We need to be increasing the load or increasing the volume, increasing the intensity somehow. Intensity is usually equated to load actually in the sense of resistance training. So we've got to be increasing those things in order to continue to get results. And a really good example of that that people will relate to is if you're a tradie, you know, my old band's a sparky. I was always on building sites growing up and stuff. You see people get into say the building trade and they shape up pretty quickly, right? Mm. Swinging a hammer, climbing ladders, lifting things all day, but then it stops. And in fact, they decondition a little bit from that point because the body will kind of overshoot just a little bit, right? Because it wants to make sure there's a little bit of reserve there, but then it doesn't need that little bit of reserve because it realizes, hey, we're just doing the same thing each and every day. So it doesn't continue to progress. So having that progressive overload is critical. And I think that's one of the things that is often missing nowadays. Because so many people, when they're thinking about resistance training, it's in the context of movement, right? And that's framed by our societal idea that we need to, well, for most people, they feel they need to lose weight. In order to do that, they feel they need to move more and eat less. And so they just want to be active and they want to do stuff, right? It's like they want to wave their arms in the air, run around, burn calories, and it's all very much that metabolic conditioning type stuff. But there's not always a lot of overload inherent within that because they're not taking a progressive approach to getting stronger. And I think that's something that's really lacking. You know, the, the old analogy that's often pulled out, everyone would pull it out when they're talking about progressive overload, is the story of Milo of Croton, right? In the ancient Greek world, it was actually, I think, in what was called Asia Minor there or modern-day Turkey. There was a Greek settlement, Croton, and Milo was... It could be apocryphal, but he was apparently a guy who lifted his newborn calf and every day continued to lift this calf until it was a cow. So you can imagine each day it was getting that little bit heavier. 
Now, whether he actually lifted a cow, I very much doubt, but it's still, you know, the principle applies. Yeah. With strength training then, if someone wants to get stronger, what do they need to do? Do they need to, like, are they focused on lifting as heavy as they can every time? Are they trying to completely fatigue the muscles with every lift? Are there certain lifts that they should try and do at the start? What do you recommend? I guess a way to approach this is to look at what's what's optimal for developing strength. And so when we're talking about strength, we really are talking about the maximum amount you can lift. So it's a one repetition maximum. But that doesn't mean that your training is going to always be you know, one repetition. The research tells us, and there have been some recent reviews done on this, um, reviews by Iverson and colleagues and um, Christophic and colleagues have given us a lot of real, really good uh, indications as to what is best. Yeah. But also what is a minimal effective dose, right? So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But in terms of what's best for strength, most of us would consider this to, you know, this is coming from the research, but most of us would sort of understand this as well, that the optimal repetition range is about one to six, right? Um, in terms of the overall volume, about five to 10 working sets per muscle per week is right. probably about optimal. And the frequency of training should probably be somewhere between one to four plus. Now, with strength, it's interesting because a greater frequency is probably preferable. And that's because when we're talking about strength, we're really talking about not just, well, we're not even necessarily talking about growth of muscle per se. Right. There might be growth of muscle or there may not be, but what we're really talking about is increased efficiency. So we're talking about neural efficiency so that the programming of those neurons in the brain and the central nervous system, the mind-to-muscle activation... Um, being able to recruit more motor units or more of those um, muscle units within a muscle group, and then also being more efficient within that neural to muscle link of how we're doing the movement, right? So in many respects, we can think of strength as being a skill. And the way we improve a skill is to do it more frequently. But often the way to not progress as quickly is to take that skill to failure all the time. So an analogy that, you know, people would relate to is if you're trying to get better at a tennis serve, you don't just go and serve until you can't serve anymore because you're just going to do an injury. Mm. You're not going to be able to serve again for maybe two weeks. You'll probably blow out your shoulder. And not only that, but a lot of the serves within that session are going to be poorly executed. So you're actually training poor movement patterns. So if we think about strength as a skill, we want to be doing a greater amount of high quality movement with very high loads. So that's where the balancing act is. We want to make sure that we have enough load and that that load is progressive over time. We want to make sure that the movement quality is good and that we're able to repeat those performances quite frequently. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Put it into context, when I was lifting competitively, I was lifting in all-round weightlifting, but I also competed in... Olympic weightlifting. So I was training with the Olympic weightlifting team up at Millennium Institute. So I was training with guys like Richie Patterson, uh, Mark Spooner. You know, we were training under Nigel Avery and Richard Dryden, you know, the best sort of New Zealand coaches that we've really had. Um, Nigel's obviously, you know, three-time gold medalist. Richie, multiple-time gold medalist. So these are really, really top guys. We seldom train to failure. You know, we might train to failure or go for a real true max, maybe once a month, once every two months, once every three months, because that would be almost like a competition style workout. 
Whereas the rest of the time, we're wanting to keep a few reps in reserve because we want the quality of the work done to be exemplary because it has to be with Olympic lifting, right? Mm. You, you can't, you just won't get the weight up if it's a really horrible snatch where well, you might, but it's going to be far more efficient over the long term to have those really high quality movement patterns to be able to move the greatest load with the, the greatest safety and efficiency. Yeah, right. And then in terms of um, that mind-muscle connection and, and the neural pathways, what sort of timeline are we talking about from if someone starts strength training? What aspects of their improvement are related to what? You know, I'm thinking you start strength training and, and initially maybe in a week you might think, hey, I can, you know, the next week I can lift heavier than I could the week prior. Like are those just neural adaptations that you've encountered? Like when do you start actually building strength through the muscle? I mean, most of it's neural in those early stages. And then in terms of the strength and the muscle, really what we're often talking about is still neural in some sense because we're talking about being able to recruit more motor units, being able to recruit muscles and muscle groups in the most efficient ways. So that still all rests on a neural basis. So so much of it comes down to the, the neural side of things. However, there's always going to be some muscle growth. Right, Even if you're not really training for it, there's going to be a little bit anyway. Now, growth comes down to volume primarily, and I guess we'll talk about that, but there will be some muscle tissue growth. And I mean, even that happens relatively quickly. It's like a piece of string, I guess, like how how much of it is neural versus how much is muscular because they're so tightly linked, it would be hard to say. How quickly can someone develop strength? Well, how strong can someone be? I mean, it sounds a little bit silly, but that's a debate as strength coaches we often have. I remember when I was working up in Canada and we were training a lot of top-level athletes, we would often have the discussion of, well, how strong do our athletes need to be? And really there's no answer. The answer is determined by how much time the athlete can put into their strength training according to their recovery ability and the demands of their sport. Because as soon as they start to do less of their sport in order to get stronger, it's probably going to be detrimental mm. because, you know, the sport-specific side of things is critical. And that's an interesting sideline discussion as well because you, you see a lot in sports, people will be doing a lot of conditioning workouts to get fitter for their sport. But really the best way to get fit for your sport is to do your sport more. You know, if you're a boxer, do more rounds on the bag. You know, don't necessarily focus on having to do things in the weight room that are conditioning biased. Now, you can, of course, and there's always a place for it, but it shouldn't take the place of a progressive approach to strength because you can get fit quite quickly, right? You can go into camp for six weeks and get really fit for a fight, but you won't develop appreciable levels of strength quickly because that's a long-term process. So people really need to devote the time over months, years, decades to get truly strong because it's a skill and because it rests on so many other factors. It takes a long time. How does strength then play into hypertrophy training? And how does strength training and hypertrophy training differ? You know, people think of them as, as very different, but they're very similar. And whenever we're training for strength, we'll put on a little bit of muscle. Now, even if it's not a lot because we're doing very low volumes, there's still going to be some muscle growth. And when we're training for muscle growth, we're going to get a lot stronger, right? And this idea that people have, well, bodybuilders look strong, but they're not, is rubbish. They may not be proportionately as strong as an Olympic weightlifter, 
But let's face it, most of the top bodybuilders we know are incredibly strong. Mm. They're just really big as well, right? And so the big difference between, say, strength training and hypertrophy is that for hypertrophy training, really the thing that drives muscle growth more is volume. There's also slightly different muscle tissue types. So with strength, we're often looking at, uh, say, fast twitch type 2B fibers, which are more related to power and pure strength, whereas there's a sort of strength endurance fiber type 2A, which grows a bit more, right? And so that's what's often targeted with hypertrophy training, which is why if we look at an optimal rep range, whereas strength is about 1 to 6 reps as the optimal, the optimal rep range for hypertrophy is about 6 to 15. In some cases higher, like you can get good hypertrophy results from 25 or 30 reps or even more. So it's a bit more moderate, I guess, in terms of the rep range. In terms of volume, whereas with strength, we're kind of looking at maybe 5 to 10 working sets per muscle group per week. Uh, For hypertrophy, we're probably looking at around 10 to 30 working sets, so it's a lot more. Mm. So you've got higher reps, higher overall volumes. In terms of frequency, not so important, whereas we might see improved strength from increased frequency. We might see that in the research around hypertrophy, but it's very marginal, Mm. right? So it doesn't really matter too much. If we equate for volume, if you're training each body part once a week versus four times a week, so long as the volume's the same, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Right. One factor that would determine how frequent you're training then is the level at which you've... um work the muscles and your recovery, right? Because you wouldn't want to be overtraining. Yeah, it's an interesting one too, because to some degree, the frequency is determined by that, but that can also determine the frequency. What I mean is if you get in the gym and do 30 sets for your biceps on one day, they're going to be pretty freaking sore. Mm. And you may not, you might, might not be able to move your arms. So you may not want to train them again for another week. Mm. Whereas if you were splitting up that 30 sets over the week and training for you know five days a week, doing biceps at every session, maybe the soreness wouldn't be quite so much. And we'd also then need to look at, well, is soreness necessarily an indicator of when we should train? And it's not necessarily because we can train when sore and still get good consistent results over time. So I think the main thing is that are we recovering well? And other indicators can tell us whether we're recovering well. You know, particularly, I think one of the things that I often talk with my athletes about, talk with my other clients about, and that is a really good take-home message for people is, how are you sleeping, right? And it's not just that sleep is important for recovery, it's that sleep will probably be affected by overreaching, overtraining quicker than anything else. Often when we're, you know, overstressed, overreached, overtrained, our sleep cycle will shorten and our sleep quality will, will go down. So if we're not sleeping well, that can be a really good indicator that something's not quite right. And it can also tie in with nutrition, obviously, because nutritional stress, not getting enough fuel in particular, will also shorten our sleep window. Why? Because the body's basically saying, well, I'm going to give you the minimum amount of sleep right now so that you've got more time to be out hunting and gathering because you're undernourished. Mm. And so there's always an interplay between overreaching, overtraining, stress, and fuel and nutrient availability. So a lot of times when we're seeing people overtrained, in fact, they're just under-eating. Really? Big time. Sorry, just cutting in here. I'm just going to share a little quick message from our sponsor, Found Space, and also fill you in on how you can win that sauna. Now, as a listener of Well & Good, you're probably someone who prioritizes your health and well-being. 
Well, have you ever tried an infrared sauna before? Or have you even considered having one in your own home? I have a sauna at my place and it's been the best investment in my health. I seriously think it has been. Now, since 2008, FoundSpace has installed thousands of state-of-the-art low EMF infrared saunas across Australia, and they now deliver and install anywhere in New Zealand. An infrared sauna is such a powerful health tool because it addresses multiple fundamental areas of your health in one session. They help you to de-stress and sleep well, manage your weight, find relief from chronic pain, and recover efficiently from workouts, plus heaps more. And they don't just sell you a sauna, the FoundSpace sauna specialists are ready to chat about your health challenges and goals, help you find the perfect sauna for your home, and then integrate it into your routine to get the best results. To enter the chance to win your very own FoundSpace sauna, just hit the link in the show notes. The show notes can be found in the description of this podcast on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. So go on, get entering. The competition is only open to New Zealand residents and entries close 31st of October, 2022. Now back to the chat. So how would someone know what's limiting them? Like, are they under eating? Are they overtraining? How, how would you know? It's a good question. And we would look again at a lot of signs and symptoms that they're exhibiting. So again, if their sleep cycles collapse, if they're not sleeping that well, you know, feeling anxious or jittery through the day, if they're having poor energy, you know, energy slumps, things like that, then those can all potentially indicate that they're underfueled. Uh, we might just simply track, you know, and I'm not a big fan of tracking for most people, but where we see signs that we want a little bit more data, then it's really informative. I'll throw an analogy in there, which is tangential, but I think it's of interest. I mentioned off here that uh, some of the research I've been doing recently is in the COVID-related space. For some of the people in our studies, actually for most of the people in our studies, if we just looked at the person, we'd say, well, they look fairly young, fit, healthy. When we look at their diet, just with a broad overview, you'd think, well, it actually looks pretty okay. As soon as we started analyzing their food data, though, we realized in most cases they were under-eating, so under-fueled, not eating enough protein, not eating enough omega-3 fats, and then a raft of micronutrient insufficiencies. And that's not uncommon. So when you talk about under-fueled, are you just talking about from a macronutrient point of view or micronutrient? Under-fueled being their total energy total, availability. Okay. So yeah, that, that right. plays into obviously the macro mm. situation because we wouldn't really consider protein to be much of a fuel-providing macro. Sure, it can provide sort of 10 to 15% of energy needs max, but really we're talking there about lipids or fats and carbs. You know, So what's the balance there and is, are they just getting enough fuel full stop? So most people were not getting enough fuel? Yep. Now, that's probably due to the cohort we were working with, mm. and it would be a bit of an anomaly because, let's face it, a lot of people in the general population are, are eating too much. And that's not a criticism of them. That's just the, the way our hyper-palatable, ultra-refined food environment leads people to be. But we estimate, and this is just complete spitballing, but we are going to do more research on this, that maybe 20% of people are underfueled rather than overfueled. And that's a significant enough minority that we need to be aware of it because if everything we're doing is framed around lose weight, eat less, move more, that's not serving that population. And we have a very strong suspicion that that's associated with anxiety, depression, you know, other mental health challenges, and a whole raft of other potential issues as well. Plus, if you're just not eating enough, 
it's unlikely that you're getting enough of the vitamins and minerals as well. So the cofactors of energy creation, the cofactors of immunomodulation, all that kind of stuff, they're not going to be high enough either because the volume of food simply isn't great enough. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's something I think I I may have experienced myself actually just over the last couple of months. I've um, been increasing my protein intake throughout the day. And I think with that, probably my general energy intake as well. Because before then, I would... Um, I've been at intermittent fasting for oh, years, actually, and um, it's sort of what I most, you know, I do most days. But just over the last couple of months, I've been having some breakfast and I've been having protein shakes or protein smoothies for breakfast. Crimes against fasting. I know. Can you believe it? It felt like that at the start because I've, <laughs> I, you know, I was, I've been doing it for so long. I was like, oh my god, I'm cheating myself. But I think what I've been doing is I've been able to put on a little bit of muscle. And I felt that I have a little bit more energy throughout the day. And it made me think that maybe, you know, for what I was doing with my body in terms of physical exertion during the day, I required more energy and more protein for my body to be happy where it was. And, and I also wonder, like, potentially not having enough fuel, maybe not having enough protein, was that putting a bit of stress on my body as well? Now, this it's a really good point you bring up because people... You know, I've been involved in the fasting space for a long time, longer than most. I got into fasting as a sort of more spiritual exercise in probably my early teens. I became interested in the physiology of fasting and the effects that it might have from the late 90s onwards. So we're talking about a quarter of a century that I've been interested in that space, along with keto and all that kind of stuff. As you know, I did my doctorate in those things. Because of that, people would expect that I'm fully in favor of them. And I am where it's appropriate. But the key is that people often ascribe magical properties to keto or magical properties to fasting, when in effect, we take fasting, for example, if we look at the research and we equate for energy intake, there's basically no difference between calorie restriction versus fasting. So the fasting window is not actually that important per se, with the exception of one measure, which is IGF-1. So that might have some application for cancer and things like that. So I'm not unaware of that. So there might be some benefits in certain cases from fasting full stop. But on balance, for most people most of the time, it's a way to have an appropriate energy balance. And so considering that a lot of people probably eat a little bit too much and it's hard to not do that, we've got different strategies, right? One could be, well, we tell people to eat less at all your meals and they may not do it. Or we say, well, drop a meal in the morning and they're probably more likely to do it. So mm -hmm. in that case, it's a really good auto-regulatory technique for regulating the calories down. However, if you happen to be the person who perpetually undereats, which I think I've been in the past, is fasting really a good idea given that it's probably going to auto-regulate your calories down? Probably not. You might be better off adding breakfast back in, um, you know, having a priority on eating maybe more meals rather than fewer. It all depends on the individual. So I think we, we really need to look at what our individual state is. Now, when you say stress, I wanted to cover this because... The stress of not eating enough is a real thing because when we're not eating enough, the body needs to have fuel. So what's it going to do? If it's not getting that fuel extrinsically, it's going to want to create usable fuels. So it's going to do that through a stress response, which elicits gluconeogenesis or the creation of glucose in the body. So yes, there is that residual level of stress. Here's an interesting thing. Probably the last couple of years, I've seen an interesting cohort of patients who had intractable IBS. What I mean by intractable is it's no one can figure it out, mm. right? Why do I have IBS? And I noticed an interesting thing. A lot of these people were keto, 
fasting. They were very interested in health. So a lot of them were restricting a lot of foods. I don't eat gluten. I don't eat dairy. I don't eat this. I don't eat that. Very, very restrictive eating patterns. And when, when I analyzed their food data, they were drastically underfueled. In those particular cases, the process was to become less restrictive. Hey, let's not worry so much about these things. Let's try and have a bigger compendium of food. Let's try and bring some things back in. Maybe let's add breakfast back in. Let's increase our protein intake, blah, blah, blah. All these various things that we can do to help them just eat a bit more. And in every case in which we saw that type, or in which I saw that type of scenario, their IBS massively improved. Now, the reason they had IBS was probably because they were under eating, stress response, their gut is hyper-responsive to that stress response, a stress response, so those, um, you know what we used to call adrenaline, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, the role of those in the gut is to close gastric sphincters and to reduce motility or movement through the gut, to reduce movement through the bowel. Anyone who's listening, in your mind's eye, think about that. If you're closing off sphincters, what are you doing? You're closing off a portion of bowel. Is that like fight or flight where you've got adrenaline kind of pumping in your body and so your your blood, all the um, physical operations in your body, are they're focused more on your periphery so you can fight or run away rather than rest and digest, right? Exactly. Okay. And so the biochemical response is that's elicited usually results in, well, initially it can be a bit of flushing. So if you're really freaked out and you've got to run away from a tiger, you might suddenly just crap and then run, but then it's going to stop everything. Okay. So it stops that movement through the gut. And so that, you know, you can kind of think about that in your mind's eye. It's almost like you're creating these balloons in your gut. And you can think about the consequences, pain, cramping, bloating. Ah, oh, that's IBS. You know, we know that IBS is intrinsically linked to stress. And so it's an interesting one because people don't often think about nutrient stressors as being a potential cause for these. I'm not saying it's the only cause. I'm not saying it's the only thing we'd look at. But in certain people, it can certainly be a driver of that. Mm. One thing you also just talked about before uh, briefly was um, increasing protein intake. I want to know what you what your thoughts are on the ideal amount of protein that someone should be consuming every day. I think a lot of people under-consume protein. And so if we start at the real basics, you know, our recommended daily allowance for protein, I think most people would have heard this ad nauseum that it's too low. You know, 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight per day is ridiculously low. If we're looking at, as we age, preserving muscle, we need at least uh, 50% more than that. So we need at least 1.2 grams per kilo body weight per day uh, for optimum performance, which I think we should all strive for anyway. Because performance, to my mind, is not just about physical performance, although that's a big part of it. But performance is about performing your daily activities better. So if you want to be better at picking up your kid or lifting your luggage. Life's a gym. There's reps everywhere. Exactly. We we should all be striving for those athletic ranges, right? Because we're not talking about fuel here. We're talking about the structure of the body and what provides for the structure of the body. So um, the recommendation for performance is at least 1.4 grams per kilo body weight per day. And I would say probably a little bit higher is, is a good thing. Now, if people are under eating it actually helps to have more protein because it helps to preserve muscle. And so uh, my colleague, Dr. Eric Helms, uh, did a really good review on this, finding that in excess of two grams per kilo body weight per day was optimal for people dieting as well. Most people probably don't need two grams, but somewhere between, say, 1.5 and two grams is probably a really good range for people. Mm. Now, that's a lot more than what most people take in. So, you know, I'm 90, just over 90 kilos. That's 180 grams per day for me. Uh, It would be very difficult for me to get that in if I was having a one meal a day 
diet or if I was even two meals a day, which is why I have four meals a day, two of which are shakes. Mm. That's exactly what I've been doing as well. And I've been aiming for around about 200 grams of protein per day, which is a little bit over two grams per kg for me. And for someone, you know, of your size and muscularity and relative leanness, I mean, that would be bang on, I reckon. And I think also, I mean, obviously your requirements for protein are increased dependent on what you're doing throughout the day physically, right? So if you're resistance training, then you would probably need more protein because would you be turning over more protein as well? You are, absolutely. The increased necessity is not as great as people think, though. Okay. So I still think, you know, the average person would still benefit from 1.5 grams mm. per day. And maybe if you're training really hard, then up to two. But, you know, it's not as if the average person should just say, well, I don't really train that hard, so 0.8 grams is going to do it. It's like nowhere near. Okay. Because that's not going to offset muscle loss as you age, which is holding muscle as we age is, is one of the biggest things we can do to reduce long-term health conditions and, and to improve our lifespan. And, and it's often underestimated the importance of it, mm. as is the effect of strength training. I've discussed this a lot with with colleagues and with people on podcasts and all sorts, is that we can see if we look at a hierarchy of benefit from training, resistance training or strength training has the biggest bang for buck for fat loss and for long-term health outcomes. So we know that. But I think that the effect that it has is drastically underestimated in the research. And I'll tell you why. When we're looking at randomized controlled trials, they're generally very short, right? We're looking at usually about around 12 weeks, there might be longer studies, but generally they're fairly short because people don't stick to things very long. It's hard to get compliance in long-term studies and that blows your results out and for funding reasons. So can we really see the true health effects of resistance training in a 12-week trial when we're looking at things that are so much more complex and nuanced? We're never going to see it. So then people will say, well, we've got observational research, though. And yeah, that's great, because the observational research we can look at over a long period of time, and we can see absolutely that it results in you know, market improvements in health over the long term. However, I don't think that that's telling us the whole picture, because most people, as I mentioned before, don't take a progressive, intelligent approach to strength training. They're doing resistance training, but is it actually that effective? Or are they just going into the gym and throwing around some weights with no real idea of progression? I think if we could really drill down and look at those people who are taking an intelligent, progressive approach, then we would see even greater results. Now, I think we're limited at this stage mostly to looking at case studies for that. But, you know, we have, and I don't want to be the appeal to authority type dude, but, you know, we, we do have, you know, a lot of instances of, you know, old-time strong men who were lifting you know, still deadlifting well over 100 kilos at 100 years of age kind of thing. And I think that's something we can all aspire to, to be ruggedly strong in our old age. That's impressive at that age. I'm keen to know what you think then would be a good sort of prescription for someone who wanted to age well and keep strong through the, you know, later years of their life and have a long health span. Like, what sort of exercises would they be doing? Okay, so I'm going to preface this a little bit because... Anyone who was scribbling down any notes might might have looked at, you know, for hypertrophy, for example, muscle gain. Okay, so somewhere around 10 to 30 sets a week per muscle group, you know, maybe one to four times per week per muscle group. 
thinking, I'm going to have a hard time doing that with my routine. You mean, yeah, that's, that's a lot of time, yeah. right? It's quite a lot of time, yeah. Now, that's optimal, though. That same research, the research by Iverson and colleagues, looked at the minimum effective dose, and that's a lot lower. So the minimum effective dose, we're sort of looking at one to four sets per body part per week mm-hmm. and similar frequencies, right? So that immediately changes the context a lot. And people who are already committed to weight training, it's not going to be an issue. But the bigger challenge I think we have is that a lot of people out there are wanting to get into strength training, but they really just don't feel like they've got the time or the sort of intention to do it. So when I've got that type of client, or in fact, um, I've also used this with you know people who've got chronic fatigue or people recovering from long COVID, things like that. We need to really um, do that minimum effective dose and get into the habit of actually doing it. And so in those cases, I think doing it every day can be a really good way to approach it. And just to to minimize the exercises using a lot of the muscle. So for example, uh, one program I've often had people doing is maybe bodyweight squats, push-ups, and some back bridge variations going from simple to complex over time, just doing one or two sets of of each of those every day. And that drives the the habits of change, right? From there, you can really go to any level of complexity. And I think for a lot of people, it is going to be beneficial to use more complex movements, uh, utilizing more musculature, because then you get a lot of crossover. So it's not like you need to do, say, 10 sets for biceps every week, Mm -hmm. because you might be doing pull-ups, which are working everything from the grip through to the biceps, you know, through to the lats, the musculature of the back, all that kind of stuff. We could probably also drill it down to in terms of movements we should do. We can take a step back and look at what the human body can do. And although it's not very precise because all things that we do in in our daily movement are sort of combinations of these, but we can drill it down to what people tend to call the primal movement patterns. We've got pushes, we've got pulls, we've got squats, hip hinges, and lunges of various types. I'd also throw in there maybe some direct ab work and loaded carries. But if people are having a think about those things and making sure over, say, a length of time, they're getting at least some of those or all of those things in, doesn't have to be in every training program, but if they're getting all of those things over you know, several months with some consistency and they're getting stronger in those movements they're really covering their bases pretty well. It can be quite a simple workout regime if you're just doing, you know, some pushes. So you're doing like a bench press and then maybe would you do like some sort of overhead press as well as part of your presses and then some rows for some pulls, squats, deadlifts? Yep, definitely. I mean, and all of those could be done. You may not need to do everything all in one session either, you know, Mm. because let's say you were really simplifying down. You might do a press, a pull, and either a squat or a hip hinge type pattern. That that could be it. So you might do an overhead press, some pull-ups, and some back squats. Uh, another day you might do a bench or some type of sort of horizontal push variation, some rows, and some deadlifts. Or you could go super minimal. You know, some of the programs that guys like Dan John and uh, Pavel put together are, are super minimal. They're cool. They're exciting. They're fun to do for a while. Uh, like, you know, supersetting swings with push-ups, alternating between those until you start to feel a little bit fatigued, not pushing it too hard, and then call it a day. You could do that every day. And if you're progressively increasing the load you use over time, 
And with bodyweight exercises, increasing the difficulty of them, you can improve for a long, long period of time. And you don't need to be doing a lot of exercises necessarily to get a good global effect over the body. Mm. And one thing you kind of touched on before was you, you mentioned that resistance training is kind of like the almost like your biggest bang for your buck in terms of your like health um, that some of these studies are showing. I want to know what your thoughts are on on traditional cardio. You know, like traditional cardio, we're, we're always thought we need to have some sort of cardio aspect to our fitness. Like it's so important for our health. Um, it's the best way to lose weight. You just go for heaps of runs. And that's kind of what I used to think. And I used to, um, I remember at high school, like getting up at 6 a.m. in the morning and in Christchurch and it was freezing cold and I'd go for runs and it was... Um, you know, I think I was you know, being really healthy and getting really fit. And then, and now I do very little running, but I do a lot of resistance training with with little rest. Actually, is how I like to do it. Um, mainly because I just don't have the time with with kids. But but it means that my my heart rate's elevated throughout, and I feel as though I can get many of the adaptations and fitness gains, I guess, um, through resistance training. Yeah, and you will get increases in cardiovascular fitness through resistance training. It just won't be as much as if you were doing dedicated cardio training. Obviously, it's going to be more if you are doing that sort of compressed, you know, metabolic conditioning type stuff with shorter rest periods, you know, CrossFit style workouts, maybe, um, you know, a lot of the kettlebell stuff is sort of geared towards that as well. So you certainly get benefit. And I guess people need to think about, well, what's going to give me the biggest bang for buck? And what is going to help me to be healthy and then improve specific attributes that I want to improve. So obviously, if you want to be a really good runner, you got to run. But I don't really want to be a good runner. I don't care for running much, especially nowadays, having shot both knees, back, and all that kind of stuff. It's problematic for me. I can run, and I would never want to be one of those people who said, you know, I, I can't do it because of past injuries. I want to be strong and stable enough to be able to run. But I don't do a lot of it because it just doesn't give me the, the biggest bang for buck. I tend to get my conditioning through things I love doing, so I get my conditioning by just doing more rounds on the mat because I obviously do wrestling BJJ. Uh, so that's my conditioning. And the rest of my training is very much just geared towards strength and power. And so you get a good crossover with that. Now, one thing I will say, though, is that there is a place for residual movement. And it's not cardio per se. It's just moving around more. And so this is really the sort of foundation of getting X amount of steps per day. It doesn't need to be a lot. It's probably somewhere around seven, seven and a half thousand steps per day is that sort of tipping point for long-term health outcomes. But there has recently been research looking at people who were doing maybe like gym-based training. So they were getting their resistance training in, they were getting the enough of that training to sort of meet their requirements for health according to public health guidelines. But they still weren't necessarily healthy enough if they weren't getting that residual activity. So I think first and foremost, we should be doing resistance training. Secondly, I think it's important to bookend our activity. So if we're doing the resistance training, at least make sure we get that sort of seven odd thousand steps per day. Then if people want to do additional work on top of that, then the metabolic conditioning, cardio, whatever, great. And obviously how, how they apportion different modalities is going to depend on what they want to improve most. Someone comes to you and they, they're quite overweight and they want to lose their weight, they've been running and uh, not really enjoying it, and they say, hey, Cliff, mate, what should I be doing? Should I be doing resistance training? How's that going to help me? Is it like, or should I be spending my time running, or should I, you know, what should I be doing? I want to lose weight. 
I think you know it comes down to time allocation, and if, if someone has limited time, then the priority should always be weight training. Resistance training is going to have the greatest effect of any exercise modality on body fat loss. So that's what needs to be in there first in terms of exercise. Then if there's additional time, once they're doing that sort of minimum effective dose, then they could maybe choose to do more resistance training or choose to do some other stuff, you know, some cardio, some metabolic conditioning, whatever, assuming that they can recover from it well and it works in with their sort of overall weekly routine. And then, of course, nutrition is critical because nothing much is really going to happen without nutrition. Of course, you'll get stronger. Um, Yes, you might lose a little bit of body fat. You'll certainly be healthier. But unless nutrition is also conducive to body fat loss, then there's not going to be marked results there. How does muscle relate to your like metabolic requirements during the yeah throughout the day? Because I mean, you know, the more muscle you have, the more energy requirements you have. Yeah. Does that mean that you can basically build a bit more muscle, and then your muscle's going to be burning all that energy for you, kind of like doing your cardio for you? Pretty much. I mean, you know, fat tissue is metabolically active, but obviously muscle is so much more so that it's going to increase that resting metabolic rate by just a little bit. Uh, obviously, there's a little bit of energy that's going to be used during sessions as well, but people overestimate that. You know, it's not like we can eat a big muffin and then go into the gym for half an hour and expect to burn it off. It's not going to happen, but it's more about the long-term effects. So yeah, it's those things that you're mentioning, like that increase in metabolic rate. Probably even more importantly, the change in how we then apportion nutrients, because if we're putting, especially resistance training, if we're putting that resistance challenge on the muscle, it's going to be far more insulin sensitive. And that means we're going to store more glycogen within the muscle. We're going to store more, even more triglycerides or fats within the muscle. And so there's going to be a greater potential that those things are going to be stored within muscle rather than shunted off to adipose tissue or fat storage. So it's not just about the metabolic rate aspect. It's about the improvement in nutrient partitioning over a longer period of time as well. Yeah, I, f- I find that aspect quite fascinating. Um, we're sort of coming to the end of uh, end of our time here, but I want to actually ask you what your training is like at the moment because since we last since we last chatted on the podcast I think we've um was well, almost a couple of years ago we've we both we yeah. both have had respective children or at least our partners have been well, we certainly haven't had the same we, children we, no we, we have not and we haven't <laughs> actually, and we don't have the same partners and we and we haven't <laughs> been doing the having of the children ourselves in fact our partners have but we've been we've been doing the the helping uh, to look after and the the parenthooding how has that been, I guess, like probably more time constraints now for you? Would there be or not? There ob- ab- absolutely is. Yeah. Having said that, though, it's interesting because I think the time constraint has almost driven me to be more efficient with my training. I made a decision probably a year or two ago to put some size on, so put some good size on because, you know, as I mentioned off air, I'd been for a long time keeping my weight lower to stay within sort of weight classes for whether it be BJJ, catch wrestling, weightlifting. And just just so people can um, can visualize what's happening here, Cliff, you've put on probably like 20 kgs since we last? Yeah, 15 or 20 kilos in the yeah. last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, for a person in their mid-40s, that's pretty good rate of gain. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Have, what's have, your secret, man? <laughs> the secret is eating. Yeah, you okay. know, yeah. being more consistent with eating. I wouldn't do it consistently, but I would tend towards fasting as well, mainly because if I didn't feel hungry in the morning, I just wouldn't eat. Whereas now I have a protein shake after training every time. You know, it's something I used to do back in the day and then fell out of the habit of doing. Uh, if I didn't feel like lunch, I'd just go straight through to dinner. You know, whereas now I do actually stop and eat. Now, for a lot of people, that m- may not be ideal because if you're not hungry, don't eat. You know, it's a good adage if you're looking to auto-regulate your calories down. 
But for someone like myself who tends to undereat and then suffers the negative effects of that, it was actually important for me to say, no, no, I'm going to stop, I'm going to chill, and I'm going to have some lunch and have a decent lunch. So really it was about eating and also getting back into weightlifting with a, a slightly more competitive mindset. So over the last lockdown, because I couldn't, we obviously couldn't get into the the gym to do our BJJ and stuff, I thought, well, I'm going to uh, try my hand at lifting and competition again. And there was a, a virtual or online comp coming up because everyone was locked down around the world, right? Yeah. So my colleagues in, in the UK uh, who run the, the association up there said, well, we'll put on a global weightlifting comp. And there was a couple of interesting lifts. It was a reflex clean and press. So it's like a clean into a press straight away. There's no stop. Okay. So you basically have to clean and straight out of the right. clean you press. And a hack lift, which you, you may know it's a deadlift with the bar behind your legs. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of a slightly awkward kind of lift. Really good lift to do, though. I thought, well, I'm going to try my hand at this. I'd put on a bit of size already. I continued to put on size for that. You know, trained for those lifts along with, you know, the assistance stuff that went along with it. And, yeah, competed in this online comp. And it was just a heck of a lot of fun. So I got back into that and, you know, consequently got a lot stronger because I had a just a clear focus. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting because I, I train every morning. Uh, so I typically get up quite early. Um, Bella sleeps in, so that gives her a chance to get a bit of extra sleep because obviously she's often been doing a little bit more than I during the night. Um, so I get up with Dexter and uh, he he watches while I do some lifting and that's lots of fun. And then we just hang out and play for the rest of the morning until Bella gets up. Except for a couple of times a week, I still get into jiu-jitsu. So I'm basically alternating lifting with jiu-jitsu and then um, I tend to, at the end of the working day, do a short yoga session as well, just to sort of free up the body a little bit, because I find, you know, my, my work is basically staring at a computer screen and reading research and stuff like that, so you can become a little bit hunched over, and I find my zoas gets quite tired and all that kind of stuff. So doing that little extra yoga session at the end of the day really helps sort of mobilize things as well, and it's a nice mindful activity to sort of put a book into the day as well. Mm. Oh, that sounds perfect. Yeah, man. Oh, well, that is that is us, man. Um, I think there's still a, some stuff that we didn't get a chance to cover today, which I'd, I'd love to probably get you back on at some point, just yeah, to delve even part, deeper. Part two. Yeah. Part two A. Part two A. <laughs> um, but for now, I think we should, um, we should go have a protein shake. <laughs> Sounds good, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.